We're getting our game on right now. Millions of people from all over the world are piling into stadiums, both physically and virtually at the moment, to see the very best battling it out across a plethora of games and brands are very rightly starting to take notice. So that's what we're talking about. We're going to catch up with one of our Edelman experts. Welcome to episode 47 of Sideload. Hello and welcome to Sideload, the technology podcast from Edelman, London. I'm Jermaine Dallas and up for discussion today is the mad world of esports. Playing games is now serious business and so are the prize pots for players and the opportunities for brands. So we're talking to one of our experts who spends both his professional and personal life dealing with games and the worlds around them. So Adam Jenkins is a senior creative strategist at Assembly, which is owned by Edelman's parent company. Now, Adam's work centers around Xbox in the UK, and it includes coming up with creative campaigns and managing content creator relationships. Adam, welcome to Sideload. Thank you for having me. So it's a huge industry now, isn't it, Adam? Like, tell me about the size and why it's growing so quickly. Uh, Nizu, who are like a gaming analytics uh, agency, uh, this year put our report basically saying there's 2.7 billion gamers in the world. Um, wow. Those 2.7 billion gamers will spend roughly about $160 billion in games this year. Um, so esports is naturally a growing industry alongside that because there is a need for experience duplication within gamers. I watch, when I watch content, I want to watch, you know, games be played to the best of their ability and esports facilitates that. Um, and it's just growing at such a rapid rate. Uh, the League of Legends 2019 World Championship Finals uh, this year got 44 million peak current viewers and 100 million overall viewers that matches the same year's Super Bowl. So something that is culturally as relevant in, in real, you know, traditional sports is getting matched with esports. So, so hang on a minute. So that doesn't that make basically make esports the biggest sport in the world just about? So based on viewers, uh, the League Championship Series is the third most popular major professional sports league in the US. Wow. Yeah, so it's huge. And it just reaches like, you know, worldwide, it reaches um, just millions and millions of people. So how did it get to this size? Um, I think it has a global appeal. Um, I think as well, like I said before, with the experience duplication, I think that is a massive, massive part of it. Um, it's like, It's like traditional sports, right? If you want to, if you want to watch programming or uh, production, you want to see, you know, that game play to the best of its ability. Um, so it's, it, it pretty much transfers over into gaming as well. Most kids are encouraged to get involved in traditional sports, but with esports, there's that stigma attached because it's a sedentary sport. So how do you tackle that stigma? So. I think it's quite hard to tackle that stigma right now. I think change will be gradual. So as a new generation of parents kind of grow up and have kids, those parents will be gamers themselves and there will be a basic level of understanding of like what is expected and what is healthy and what isn't healthy. Um, 
but then also from a nurturing talent point of view i think parents will need to learn how to recognize gaming skill and the language around it and not to squander that talent um but again i think that will come with newer generations of parents being more gaming aware and just being part of that culture like like i said at the beginning 2.7 billion people are gamers that's a huge percentage of like the world's population and i think that number will only go up it's not going down so as parents come uh, parents go of age and they have kids like they're all going to be gaming aware will will i mean call me a major skeptic here but will that actually happen because i get gaming i i enjoy gaming but there's only so much gaming i would like my own kids to do um i think i think it will i think it's there uh being biased xbox and you know all major publishers are putting measures in place for parents to have uh, parental settings and more educated um, learnings of what their children are doing and how much gaming content they are consuming so it's up for the parents obviously to decide this is how much gaming they think is acceptable but i think there is a need for you to monitor uh, your children to see actually you know my child is very very good at this particular game and that is something that you can pursue down like because it is a legitimate career path now and it's such a legitimate career path because there's so much money come into it a yeah. lot of brands getting involved now um why are brands like rushing to get involved um and, and what should brands be thinking about if they do want to enter this world of esports so i think the as a snapshot if you look at kind of these the, the audience that consumes esports content it's younger uh, it's more engaged but those audiences can easily see through like shallow sponsorships um so overwatch league as much as i love it as a product is a great example of they kind of just slap branding on every single segment and then they kind of just change that segment to retrofit whatever brands is working with so i think they do a thing with um like a financial firm uh, about like like ability economy and like how when you should use your economy of your moves and it's called like ultimate economy so it's like yes it's clever and you know i think a lot of people look at it and be like yeah sure but i think a lot of uh this younger more engaged audiences are hyper aware of what you know they're being sold to they're not they're not dumb like they know that you you know your brand is trying to get this younger or like them as a younger consumer like in the doors as early as possible I think for brands, I think the important thing is to try and work out where your brand can sit from a narrative storytelling point with um, the esport that you're wanting to align with. Mm-hmm. I think like rather than just sponsoring a segment or sponsoring an entire show, I think look at the teams, look at the orgs, the players, the content creators themselves, make that part of your thinking. I think it will come across more natural. Um, I think also that if you if you want engaged Think, and if you want an engaged audience, the uh, production itself has a hyper-engaged audience. But then from that, there's a subsection of people who, you know, engage with a team in particular or a person in particular. So you can, like, distill the kind of reach you, you're wanting to get to a very, very hardcore audience. Is is it the case that there's there's some sort of reticence from some quarters because of the the style of game which is usually played in this sort of thing it's, it's usually the, the battle royale sort of games isn't it 
Yeah, I think sure. Yeah, I think like uh, I think that's why you see things like League of Legends and Dota do so well because their games, whilst they are combat heavy, aren't necessarily violent. Um, I think Fortnite has done a good job of kind of it's such a cultural phenomenon that it kind of the, the content within the game is kind of ignored. Um, but then also, you know. In Fortnite, you don't die, you just disappear, and there's no blood. And, you know, yes, you're still shooting people, and I think that is something that should be addressed. Um, but, like, they have made that product for that kind of, like, early, late teen range. Um, again, with Overwatch League, it's very safe. Um, like, Overwatch as a game isn't particularly violent. Um, and then Call of Duty, you're seeing, with the Call of Duty League, you're seeing... Yes, there are sponsorships, but yes, they are they are more gaming sponsorships because bigger brands are hesitant to put themselves. I think like Call of Duty League is like the the biggest esports league for like a mature or eighteen rated game. So I think like there you need to know that going in. Like these are actually, whilst yes, it's a younger audience, this product is still aimed at an eighteen plus year old. Get it. So. Who are the the key players currently operating in esports, and what are they doing to be successful? Um, it's the publishers. It's kind of it kind of splits into publishers that get it. <laughs> so um, Riot is particularly good at this. Um, obviously, being the most popular major professional sports league in the US, um, they wrap elements of esports into the game. Uh, Valve and Dota do this as well. Um, so Dota for their Big kind of world championships series called They just released their battle pass for 2020, which means like you buy into a battle pass and then you get a bunch of cosmetics in the game. And then like as the community uh, puts more money in, that money becomes the prize pot for this tournament. Um, this year's battle pass broke record numbers for uh, free day sales. So the prize pot for the international for 2020 is $10 million in free days of battle pass sales. That's huge, and it'll probably it'll probably end up about forty million. Um, so it's just knowing that your you have subsets of your community that whilst they might not heavily engage in with the esport element because they're so in love with the product as in the game, they are willing to put in money to fund your esports scene, which is an also like in you know boil down esports tournaments and, and leagues and all this stuff are essentially a product for the game right you go you watch the tournament on twitch or youtube or whatever and then you again want that experience duplication so you then go play the game yeah so you you're, you're talking about huge numbers especially for the, the prize pots for the players these are young people what did they spend it on uh supreme stuff i guess i don't know like <laughs> a lot of, um a lot of them will have, you know, they'll the the shelf life of an esports player is very short. Yeah. Um, famously, there is a Dota player who is about twenty six, and that is like the the end of a Dota player's career. Uh, his name is uh, Fear, I believe. So everyone just started calling him Old Man Fear <laughs> because at twenty six he's being tagged as old man. Um, so. There's a lot of questions about what are the long-term effects of, you know, uh, concentrated career, like concentrated esports careers. Like, you know, if you play Overwatch professionally, 
you're training, you know, six hours a day, eight hours a day even, and then you're going to play, you know, traveling to like these big events and you're playing multiple games for like, huge crowds. What does that do emotionally, mentally, physically? Like it's esports is so young in its life that we don't know what the long term effects are um, on the back end of like retired players. Um, so I would assume that a lot of people, because they don't know what their future life is going to be, are investing into their future, investing into their retirement, because they don't know when their last day is going to be, which is like, you know, like any career, but um, or any sports career. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. And um, yeah. and hopefully that's what the wise players are doing, at least anyway. Yes. <laughs> Saving up for the future and retirement and all that. Where next for this gaming revolution? I'll be asking Adam that shortly. But first, let's cast our minds back to the last episode of Sideload, where we talked all about the future of AI. Like a few years ago uh, at my institute, uh, Carl Frey, uh, did an analysis of which jobs are most susceptible to automation and which jobs are least. Uh, and it was quite interesting. But one of the jobs he found was the most susceptible was insurance underwriters. And Well, the insurance companies are the biggest adopters of modern machine learning techniques. Mm -hmm. And in my view, insurance underwriters are already obsolete in what their traditional job was, which was to assess the risk of um, of the client and things like that. However, underwriters are still there, and there's still lots of them, and they're still highly paid. And as far as I can tell, what happened is that now they're on for their business experience, their contacts with clients, and so they have basically moved into a different part of their job. So we predicted they would be all automated. The bit of their job that we thought was the most important was, but they're still there doing the other aspects of their jobs. The reverse happens with secretaries. Uh, there used to be lots of secretaries in most companies, uh, and secretaries were replaced mainly by word processors, not robot secretaries. So just one tiny bit of their job, in a sense, was somewhat automated, and that's completely destroyed the profession. And for underwriters, the core of their job was automated, and they're still there. You're listening to Sideload and today we're talking esports. Our very own Adam Jenkins from Assembly is our guest. So what are the challenges that the industry is facing and how does it tackle them? So the big one right now is obviously COVID. Um, that's thrown a wrench into a lot of major players' plans. Um, so Overwatch League, um, they moved in, into a, what they call a homestead model. So for those who don't know, Overwatch League is different than other esports leagues because it was the first kind of major esports uh, league to localize its team. So London has a Overwatch League team, uh, the London Spitfire. Um, previously, for seasons one and seasons two, they played every game out of um, a dedicated esports arena in Burbank called Blizzard Arena. So it's where Blizzard held like all their esports tournaments and stuff. Mm -hmm. What they tried to do this year was basically have their scene be like a, a touring sports event like any other event where you have home and away games so there would be like the london homestead so the london team would play both days and they would also have guest teams from, uh, from differently uh, different parts of the league come over and play games now obviously they can't do that anymore because of covid so they've had to move back into a kind of version of what they had at blizzard arena but they're doing digital like events um 
that's kind of happened for Call of Duty League as well. Basically, any kind of, you know, all these major esports uh, tournaments are big, big, like, concert events. Like, they have the kind of production of, like, a concert, right? Like, it's huge groups of people sitting down and watching these things happen. And that does take away from it. I think once, like, uh, once it's slightly distilling and got a crowd roaring, like, I've been to a couple of Overwatch League games, I've been out in LA, I've been to uh, Hearthstone, like, they've had, like, their, I've been to, like, three World Championship finals for Hearthstone. The crowd is a huge element of that production. It does it, look it like, like an amazing atmosphere, yeah. It's, like, it's, it's passion distilled into, like, you are watching this thing, you're reacting to this thing, and nothing else in the world matters. Um, so I think, like, taking that out, of the production element and the broadcast element, you know, makes esports suffer a bit. But there are obviously wide implications at play. Um, like no one's health is worth risking for the sake of a crowd roll. Um, the other thing though, like outside of COVID, like more long-term thing, I think you're seeing again with Overwatch League um, being a prime example, like player burnout. So these players after one or two years, they sign on for like, you know, a year deal. And then the, you're seeing a lot of these players shift. Either they are retiring to become um, content creators. So like going from playing Overwatch League professionally to just playing games on their own personal Twitch channel. Uh, Seagull is a notable example of that. He was a huge content creator going in. He was kind of seen as like the, the poster child of Overwatch League in terms of like big name streamer coming over to play professionally. And then after like a year and a half, he left. Um, two of like the kind of prestige players moved from uh, player roles into casting roles. They went, you know, they were playing behind mouse and keyboard, and then went behind the desk to like do uh, casting duties. And then you've got players who are straight up just leaving and retiring from the game, and then moving into new games. So um, Sinatra, who was the uh, DPS lead for San Francisco Shock, who won last season, he just straight up came out and quit and now he's moving over to Riot's new game Valorant which hasn't even got an esports league or esports scene yet it's just they are betting on that being such a big esports prospect that he just straight up left Overwatch into Valorant so is so is that what happens then people just specialize in one game and just play that one game competitively for a while and then if they decide to move into something else they do typically I think uh it depends the kind of game genre so Card games and fighting games, you get a lot of like overlap. Um, so Sonic Fox, who is, um, he's won like multiple Evo championships for different games. Uh, he's probably the most famous fighting game player currently in the world right now. Um, you know, he'll move between Mortal Kombat, Dragon Ball Z, you know, you name it. Like he'll just jump between games and then still perform consistently in them. I think you find card game players do the same as well. Because you're just you're taking that base level of gaming knowledge and gaming language and then applying it to different essentially tile sets. So if you're good in one card game or very good in one card game, it's, the chances are you can take that knowledge and apply it to another. Yeah, and going back to the COVID challenge at yeah. the moment. Um, yes, I mean um, you don't get these massive arenas at the moment, but I suppose that. Esports is an area that lends itself really well to this sort of um, lockdown continuation. And in fact, I've even seen some sports reverting to yeah. doing an esports version of the same sport just to keep yeah. the, the activity going in the meantime. I think F1's been a massive champion for that. Um, I think you'll, you'll see a lot of that with 
FIFA and football. Uh, but I think F1 is the closest you can get because it's essentially a simulation game. It's the closest you can get from a uh, physical real world experience into a digital experience and the crossover isn't that, um, isn't that jarring. Same with NASCAR. Uh, NASCAR moved into full digital tournaments for the time being. So was there a lot of a lot of money lost um over this period so far because of it, because of covid potentially i think the biggest the biggest loss is culturally i think like you were uh having like you know these stadiums packed full of players and fans and it moving more into mainstream and then it feels like it's kind of shifted back into a digital only experience I think it's fine. I think it will recover. I don't think esports is hurting in any way. Um, it's just, it would, you know, the stadium full of people at like the Barclays Centre for an Overwatch League final was a good way of sh- showing people who didn't get it, this thing is serious and is here to stay. Yeah. Um, and, you know, is a competitor. And I don't think it's even a competitor. I think it is up there with traditional sports in terms of like, passion and you know willingness to go out of your home and engage with a show um but i think that the the moving back into a digital experience has set it back a little bit in terms of that however due to the nature of uh, competitive gaming we esports can still do that so esports can you know esports doesn't have to halt for long periods of time like every traditional sports league has because they can facilitate and duplicate to uh, to some extent that experience remotely. And I suppose with something like esports, because it basically lives online. Um, I know you have physical events as well, but it, it, it does survive online. So you'd think that there would be um, an embracing of diversity globally and stuff, but it's there's, there's still that sort of stigma attached to it being a very male sport, isn't it? How does it become more diverse? I think from a production and back of house level, like we're talking esports as like a whole thing, I think from a production and back of house level, I think the split's closer than a lot of people think. I've been to quite a few productions and the crew is very diverse, um, like uh, from talent managers to, you know, broadcast partners to hosts all that kind of like stuff i think that is more diverse i think players players are different because i think there is a systemic issue within gaming culture and i think as that 2.7 billion number grows i think it will get better um and i think gamers need to embrace people from all walks of life playing their game because ultimately as gamers we want to be you know, when we play games, the reason why you know ranked modes and competitive modes exist in games is because people want to play to the very best of their ability or show that they can. And I think the only way you're ever going to prove that you are the best at something is by playing everyone who wants to play. So I think gatekeeping is like gatekeeping is just going to squander talent, like natural talent, for these games, for these scenes, and like you know potentially stop people having a legitimate career path um, and making a name for themselves and being, you know, in their eyes, the best version of themselves. But, like, it's changing. Like, I think you'll see more diverse competitors that to compete. Um, The first Magic the Gathering Mythic Championship, which is Magic the Gathering card game, like their big kind of uh, pro tournament, was won by 
Orn Burchett, who is a uh, trans feminine non-binary player. So like we are seeing it happen and it will happen. And I think people just need to get on board with that and not push it away. What's the future looking like for esports? Is this bubble going to burst? <laughs> I don't think the bubble will burst. I don't think it will come crashing down. I think it will level out to a sense of normalcy. I think um, right now, esports is still that shiny trinket for a lot of brands, uh, just pumping money into like sponsorships. Um, and once they can't prove ROI, or once they kind of go, okay, right, we're not getting what we want from this, they'll step back. Um, I think league structures will go away, like Overwatch League and Call of Duty. I don't think they're sustainable. Uh, from a production standpoint or a consumption standpoint. Uh, Overwatch League Year 1, I was heavily involved in to the point where I had a fantasy league with friends. Um, year 2, I watched less and less games. Year 3, I've barely been... You know, I've, I think I've consumed a couple of London games. Um, it's just so much to like keep on top of. Uh, so I think there we'll see a return to like tournament structure. So like, you know, you have brackets and then people get knocked out and there is a winner. I think that is also, from a, con- uh, from a consumption standpoint, more interesting as each game has stakes. The problem with league games is that really, like, apart from, like, long-term, it's just draining because you're watching, you know, a year's worth of content and then trying to keep on board with that. Um, so while it's an interesting experiment, I do think we'll see a return to uh, tournament structure. I also think, like, that local team method of Call of Duty League and Overwatch League, having a sense of locality to like these players, I think is great. And I think we'll see more kind of organizations adopt that because it just gives you a natural rallying point to a team. So if you go in, you go, I don't know who any of these players are, but I can support the London team. You're going to support the London team. Um, just because that is, it, it kind of taps into this core sense of tribalism that everyone has. Um, and I think that's that, that's important, and I think that's good um, because it just it, it adds a layer of passion to that, like to um, to this like product. Like London Spitfire are um, Cloud 9's Overwatch League team. Cloud Nine are like a mouse pad like manufacturer or something. Like I don't care about that, but I care the fact I care that is you know the London representative of this product. Well, you say the the bubble won't burst, but you also say that the brands might step away. If the big brands step away, surely the, the bubble will burst, won't it? I think what you'll see is... But not a bubble bursting in terms of, like, you know, it'll, it'll just completely destroy esports. What I think you'll do is you'll see brands be smarter, and they should be smarter with their investments. I think there's... Uh, if brands kind of work with, like, grass roots like tournament organizers i think that's an interesting thing as well because that's like again narrative storytelling so if you have like a local competitor who started playing at local qualifiers and makes their way to you know the big time i think that gives that brand something nice and organic to talk about um but i don't think it will i don't think it will i think the smart big brands will stay around like your red bulls of the world and your coca-colas who are actually doing smart investments into esports. I think your you know, your financial company, like finance like agency companies and like your car brands who are doing ads of like here's a bunch of esports players being driven around in Toyota. I think like that kind of shallow level will go away. 
But I think those brands who are smart and get the audience and get what's being asked from them will stick around. Cool. Well, Adam, thanks so much for joining us on the show. And a big thanks to you for listening to this episode of Sideload. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Just search Edelman UK. And if you want to get in touch, send us an email to sideload at edelman.com. See you later.